So tonight's reading comes from Genesis chapters 6 to 7. So you can find that on page 8 in your zines. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wives 
and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shot him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chloe. So if you've been coming for the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know, if this is your first time, you won't know, uh, that our theme for uh, Sundays in 2019 is Monday. And we're on about Monday, uh, on Sunday, and uh, also Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. In other words, uh, we want to connect the dots between faith and life, faith and work. That's because we're driven by a new conviction, the staff was anyway, together in dialogue with many others. But if we've got nothing to say about Monday to Friday, nothing to say about work, uh, then the disconnect between our lives and our faith will grow even more, grow more and more. We don't want you to feel like you're commuting back and forth between two worlds, two realities. To quote a friend, it takes too much psychological energy to shuttle back and forth between two such separate worlds without feeling the tension. That tension comes out in many ways. So you could argue that here at church we have this sandstone reality, look around you. And then at work you have a real one, as if there's only one real world. In our text today we have someone uh, who lived thoroughly in the real world. And yet was able to take a stand in obedience to God. He's not the only one plenty of others in the Bible, but this one man, Noah, 
who with his family chose God and climbed inside a box. He chose God against the backdrop of a planet opposed to God. That's how the story functions. And in doing so, God provided a a model, a mode of salvation for us. If I can put it this way, I'll explain this later. A model of salvation from selfishness and sin and death and even the wrath of God. And also a model for resurrection. Up and over death goes this box. So Genesis 6 verse 5, Genesis 6 verse 5 on page 8 of your zines, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. (laughs) But, Genesis 6 verse 8, Noah found favour or grace. Favour in the eyes of the Lord. He was, we're told, a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And he walked faithfully with God. So our Lent series this year is teaching from Genesis 3 through 11, where human stubbornness, like one I, the kind I have, meets God's grace in the beginning. <laughs> And in this world where you go to work, Lent is about the examination of self leading to an honest repentance and a new faith ahead of Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, where we find grace. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, the tears of the penitent form the wine of the angels. More rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. That could be tonight. Paul wrote, each of you should examine yourselves. And so we're examining ourselves through Genesis 3 through 11. The series is called Six Rules for Work and Life, not in the sense of rules to be obeyed, but rather in the sense of principles that make sense of what you do. These stories are meant to mirror life. And shine a light on Jesus Christ. I'll show you that in a moment. So today, the first part of the story of Noah. Second part's next week with the creative service. And the principle is stand against the crown. I'll come to that in a moment. Same questions each week, you might notice. What's the narrative that mirrors life? Because these texts, by the way, are ancient. But they um, are the stories that have shaped us. Lots of people argue about historicity, but the stories themselves shape us. But we also believe that the stories point forward to Jesus Christ. So the second question is, how is it fulfilled in Jesus? You're not going to hear from this pulpit, um, or rather music stand. Here's an Old Testament passage. Here's what you've got to do you know, to get hashtag blessing. Now we're going to take you right to Jesus Christ, because there's a beautiful place to be. We'll come to that in a moment. And thirdly, what's the rule for life, for work and living? I'm just going to give you some tips at the end. So this week, a stand against the crowd. Let's examine ourselves. Firstly, what is the narrative that mirrors life? It's Noah. 
popular name that, by the way, now. So classic, so well-known. Uh, it's the first memorable story for kids. And I presume people who do stuff with kids market it perfectly, right? So many colours, animals. It's a family, you know, lovely, gentle old man and his wife. Uh, a myriad of animals lining up, so there's sort of order. And a rainbow at the end. It's like thumbs up on every way. The kids' books, of course, seem to neglect the dark side of it. And there's a darkness here. Chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth just a couple of chapters before. And his heart, who knew God had a heart? Well, he's personal. His heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. A word of warning, by the way, picked up in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, if you're into cross-references. So it's a full wipeout. What some theologians call an uncreation. Um, mirroring in reverse Genesis 1 and 2, a sort of bizarro. In Genesis 1 and 2, God gives life, and here he appears to be sending humanity to the grave. That's important, we'll come to that in a moment. Bar one family who, in this box, which is what the word ark means, they rise above it. Not because they've got sort of, um, you know, I know how to rise above it because I've got the mental picture to do so. No, but because of God's grace. I don't believe that um, we're being presented here with a capricious God uh, who's um, out to swat humanity. We just said it a moment ago, Chloe did a moment ago, that he made, way, his, he made, ways, he made known his ways to Moses, who is quite potentially the writer of this text. And uh, it says, he will not harbor, harbor anger. He doesn't always accuse. In fact, he's slow to anger. So if that's true, what you're seeing here is slow to anger. No, he's the God of justice. And unlike some of the ancient Sumerian flood myths that existed around and even before this text, there's one God who notices humankind and is involved with humankind and sees hearts and he dignifies you. Because he notices hearts. What does God see? Firstly, the, the world is warped. Uh, chapter 6, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. A lot of bloodshed. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. I'm going to pick this up again in chapter 6 because the flood doesn't seem to washed in a way. Someone else is going to have to do that. Amen. He also sees inside hearts. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that, here it is, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. Now, what do you make of that? The reformers loved that verse. 
yeah, because it um, presented up total depravity, which fully understood drives a person to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where else can I go? But there it is in Scripture from God. Every inclination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. Not that I believe that humans are always evil all the time, but rather the, the inclination is bent towards selfishness and therefore needs to be arrested. In other words, left to our own devices. This is the direction we face, the inclination we have. It's why in the old um, Book of Common Prayer, in the communion service, we say, um, Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me, and, what is it? Incline our hearts to keep this law. Arrest the decline. And turn me the other way. God had done that for Noah, we find out, because God had noticed him. Now, Noah was no doubt a sinner like you and me. I'm going to learn that massively in two weeks' time. But his inclinations appear to have been arrested. The comment in verse 9 that he is a righteous man, a blameless man, does not mean in the Old Testament that he'd never sinned. That's not what it means here or in the other places that these two words are applied to a human being. Rather that his heart was directed Godward. We don't know for sure, but probably in humility, God is God and I'm not. Probably in um, ethics, I'm not the determiner of my own will, but there is a God who is, so I've got to find out what God's will is. No doubt in confession, I've sinned, can you please forgive me? Uh, offering sacrifices. And in faithfully believing in the promises of God and the grace of God. And maybe that's what verse 9 means when it says he walked faithfully with God. Not that he never sinned, but that he was hand in hand with the God who forgives him. You might like to know this, that in the end, in the Bible, I should say, in the Bible, sin is not ultimately fatal. You too can be righteous and blameless if you walk with God, following Jesus, trusting in Christ's sacrificial death for sin, asking him to forgive you and also to give you a new heart that seeks to obey him. And God says, righteous, blameless, even if we sin because of grace. In the Bible, then, sin is not ultimately fatal. I'll tell you what is. Denial is. Because that's when God says, well, you've got your high hand towards me. You, know, you remain in your sins, Jesus said. That's the default position, by the way. The inclination of the human heart is denial. In other words, defense of self. And I feel it, the inclination towards that way. But I ask God to rest my heart. The Apostle John says, if we say that we have no sin, denial, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Try this. Denial is one of the reasons we find criticism so hard in the workplace, for example, or at home, you know, um, housemates in a marriage. You know, we're surprised that we aren't all we're cracked up to be, and that's crazy, right? Why should I be surprised? Unless there's a deep sort of denial thing going on in my heart. But that's not Noah, and it's not you if you prayed that prayer of confession and you do it at all times you know you do it as a posture towards God we are the people that say I'm not God and you are God and yet you can forgive me because I'm a sinner etc in Genesis chapter 6 verses 13 to 22 God then tells Noah what to do 
Flood the earth, cleanse it. Every living thing will die. So Noah, verse 14, make yourself a box of cypress wood, an ark, and make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out for obvious reasons. It's a box and it represents the favour, the grace of God. Big floaty box. A big one, by the way, huge. And he tells him exactly how to do it, by the way, verbalising a blueprint in verse 15. You can imagine Noah going, who's got a pen? I should be writing this down. God tells him to take the animals in different places, two by two, male and female, for obvious reproductive reasons. He's going to start something new on the other side. 7 verse 2, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, and it's male, a male and its mate. One pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and some food, 6 verse 21, to be eaten on the boat, and I presume to be um, uh, sown on the other side. So he enters the ark, and after seven days the rain came. But here's the point. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded him. He yielded. And 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And then what happened? Did you hear it when Chloe was reading it a moment ago? The waters rose. And with the rising waters, the just judgment of God on human sin... And with the waters, then the ark, the box, with one family inside, in grace. And for 40 days, the floods kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. So secondly, second question, if you're writing notes, how is it fulfilled in Jesus who gives life? Well, the New Testament does a number of things with Noah. Not a lot, but a number of things. The primary one is this. Jesus says, as in the day of Noah, people on the beach, manly, thinking everything's fine, when it really isn't, not in the human heart. We're naturally defensive of our lives and we find it hard to yield to something or someone outside of ourselves, for example, God. And so we do just whatever the heck we want. (laughs) And yet God sees. When we do that, we're in denial of a real God who has a real will to obey. I want you to listen to this quote. It was said this week by Barbara Streisand. And on first glance, it looks pretty normal for our society. Um, Well, it sounds pretty normal for a society that sprung out of the sexual revolution. So this statement sounds pretty normal for the last 70 years. Referring to someone, his sexual needs were his sexual needs. Coming from whatever childhood he has or whatever DNA he has. Now just reading that quote alone, like when I first read it, I thought, well, that's what our society thinks. You know, sexual needs have to be expressed There's no God who decides how we should live, no yardstick, no external will to submit to. So sexual needs are there. They come, she said, through childhood or whatever, DNA. Of course, you know who she was talking about, don't you? 
Michael Jackson and his alleged abuse of children. She, of course, got walloped, as she should have, for good reason. At the same time, I couldn't help thinking that she's a product of her generation. Just now working out that there is such a thing as a wrong thing because society's decided that and finally and articulated it. And they're right about child abuse, of course. But surely that's what most people are doing, following their needs, their desires. As the old prayer book says, following the devices and desires of our own hearts. Or as the prophet said, neither seeking nor inquiring of the Lord. Jesus said, thou just keep partying on like nothing's changed. You might do this and turn up at church and thinking, yes, no, I just wanted to come and hear a positive message. And I'm like, I'm here to say to you, or Jesus is here to say to you, party on. Because you'll be rudely interrupted on a day. The judgment of God, Jesus says. Listen, listen, Luke's gospel. Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Up until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus is saying here, everyone around you, they're going to do what they want. But God sees and he will judge on a day. That's what Jesus says with the story of Noah. But Peter, the Apostle Peter, links the flood with cleansing waters. Symbolizing baptism, meaning being in, with, in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. By the way, keep that number in mind, 20, because I'm going to give you the number 18 in a moment, and that's going to be important. 1 Peter 3, 20. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. In other words, they went up over the water. And this water, writes the Apostle Peter, symbolizes... This immersion, this baptism that now saves you also. And not the removal of dirt, not just the symbol of baptism, from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God, in other words, faith in Him. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone up into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. In other words, Jesus went down to the grave. That's verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, Dustin Moffat, to bring me to God. He went down to the grave. He was engulfed by the waters and died. The ultimate waters, so that you and I could rise above it in Christ. See, he went down to save you, to clean you up. And I've been cleansed. And I know his cleansing power. So do many of you. To deliver me through the judgment of God and beyond it, into the safety of his arms to bring you to God. If I can put it this way, Jesus is our ark in Christ. Another way to put it, Jesus is the new and better Noah 
and I climb on board with him. I'm one of the kids, <laughs> and Jesus is my, the one who, who brings me on board. Thirdly then, what is the rule for life, for work, and for living? And the answer is to stand against the crowd. In Hebrews 11, the writer says that Noah is one of the great cloud of witnesses who models faith in a real world ahead of a promise to come. So Hebrews 11 verse 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. That has Noah trusting in a future and building an ark, I presume in the desert, against the backdrop of the world around him. So take a stand. Obey God no matter what. <laughs> um, the Apostle Peter tells us later that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But if you notice in Genesis 6 and 7, Noah doesn't say a word. Do you notice that? Not a word. I learned that this morning, listening to Paul speak. I read the text several times, didn't notice it. Without a word, he's the preacher of righteousness, maybe with his life, no doubt with his words as well. It was a surprise to me to realize that my picture of Noah in his world wasn't true, that the story of Noah has no interaction with the world around, no, no crowds mocking him. Um, my understanding was, maybe from childhood, that everyone's teasing him uh, for building a, a boat in the desert, mocking him um, for stupidity, a bit like Evan Almighty, or um, that Noah movie. Who's the actor? What is it? Russell Crowe. The text doesn't mention any mocking. And yet, clearly here, Noah is contrasted here and in the New Testament. One of our friends worked at the Guardian newspaper and uh, in my interactions in emails and etc. she wrote this. At the Writers' Festival and at the Guardian, the culture was hard. People were openly hostile to Christians, bagged out happy clappies, that's us by the way. Anyone who goes to Hillsong or is connected to the Bible Society openly hostile. At The Guardian, I shared my faith outside work when I was having drinks with close colleagues, but I didn't feel that I could talk about it at work with some people. It just didn't feel safe with others. I fear that they'd hold it against me. I was also 24 and fresh out of uni. <laughs> um, and she says, I want to talk to other people in the media you know, who can help me as I move forward into that space. And by the way, on page 18, if you've not yet filled out that survey for us, the bit.ly Faith in Work 2019, please do so, so we can put you in touch with this person. Not easy, is what she's saying. Sharing faith or the doing of faith, just being a Christian. The first week in the series, I talked about the fact that people are on Sundays, they're up one way, on a Monday, they're dog awful. And... Uh, 
Twice in my time as a minister for the last 20 years, people have come up to me to whisper into my ear to say, I, I, that person I saw at church, I can't believe them. I mean, they go to work on Monday and everyone knows them as an, an awful person. And uh, one of our friends emailed me and said, you mentioned people who are saints on Sunday but were unethical on Monday. And he wrote, I was surprised there were so few, only two in 20 years. I'm interested in compartmentalization. We exist in a Christian subculture and in a competing culture. How can we be just as Christian at work as on a Sunday? So some tips. Number one, don't lose your focus on God. I'll tell you why it's important, because you can become embroiled easily in the immediate. It's too easy to be governed by what's in front of our eyes, which is about desire, fear, and a large inbox. Doom darts, things that you haven't done that you remember later, and it freaks you out. There's a new word for you. Ah. But God asks you to love him with your heart, not urgent, but important, or at least apparently not urgent. Don't be drawn by the immediate. Uh, keep your focus on God. Dipping in during the day. Secondly, don't believe the secular vision or version of life. It's time to be skeptical. It's time to be a doubter. You don't doubt enough. Doubt the skeptical culture. And we're going to talk about that in, in the last week of this series before Easter. Don't buy it. More in, this, in the series in Daniel in the second half of the year. Third, find distinctive ways to be different. Please don't write a card saying that's tautology. I know it is. Find distinctive ways to be different. Say no to a certain thing. Draw simple lines in the sand and then don't cross them. Sometimes they're just symbols that you don't belong to the culture around you, but you belong to God. Gain more in this in the Daniel series. Fourth, resist social media as an entry point to envy. Flick, 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 flick. Other people's lives are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The whole purpose of social media is to show people the good side of your life, and so it awakens envy in you. Google this later. Derek Thompson, workism. I'll say it again. Derek Thompson, with a P, workism. Not workaholism, workism in the Atlantic. He writes this. The second external trauma of the millennial generation, the fact that I said second is going to make you Google the article. The second external trauma of the millennial generation has been the disturbance of social media, which has amplified the pressure to craft an image of success for oneself, for one's friends and colleagues, even for one's parents. Look at my parents, aren't they great? Since the physical world leaves few traces of achievement, today's workers turn to social media to make manifest their accomplishments. Many of them spend hours crafting a separate reality of stress-free smiles, postcard vistas, and Edison light-bulbed working spaces. The social media feed is evidence of the fruits of hard, rewarding labor and the labor itself. And Derek Thompson says, resist it. Fifth and finally, never lose your connection to community. Leaving a community is, well, comes through many complicated reasons, doubt, lack of connections, hurt, 
sin. But in the end, leaving community is a habit that you form, then wake up to six months later. It's easier to be away, you might say. But if God gives you brothers and sisters, don't despise that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little work, Life Together, writes about the importance of being alone. It takes a moment to understand, but please listen up and listen closely. In Life Together, he writes this. He says, alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer that call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself, for God has singled you out. In other words, everybody around you falls apart. There you are, it's you and God. So alone you need to respond to God, trust Him and obey Him. And you've got to do it despite seeking to blame everybody else around you. Bonhoeffer then makes the point then, the model for the Christian person is Jesus who prayed and obeyed and went to the cross alone. Listen, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of His enemies Sound familiar? At the, end of, at the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of the cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. So all the friends dropped aside. Jesus still obeyed God all the way to the cross. In Christ, then, you'll find your strength. So Bonhoeffer then goes on and argues or concludes that if following God alone is what is required, then if he gives you one brother, one sister, then you've been given a gift, a profound one. Freely given. How about two or three gathered together? That'll work. 40 or 50. Take the gift of community. Fill out that form and tell us where you work because we want to hook you up if there are people around you. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this. Let me leave you with this word. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, unseen, approaching. Let's pray. Father Noah um, had courage, not, not necessarily the courage of his convictions, but the courage of being in your favour and in your grace and hearing your word and then responding and yielding and trusting and we want to be the same. Jesus Christ had courage as the Son of God to go to the cross, to die for my sins, to be engulfed by the waters of death that I might be raised in him and with him. And so in him, Father, we want to be people who have courage, who take a stand in general and beautiful ways by our lives and in our words and in our confessions in your power may we have the strength to do so for Christ's sake amen